0: Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lasley. So much of the aerospace defense community lately has been focused on analyzing the Afghanistan conflict and recent events there that have occurred as America's longest war finally has drawn to a close. And that's very important. It's a topic that definitely deserves our attention and we've talked about it here before. But something that has received a little bit less attention is another conflict involving the U.S. and its allies, not too far away, and that's the war in Syria. That war is important in its own right, but the use of air power in Syria has come to really define that conflict in some key ways. So here to talk to us about that very topic is Dr. Aaron Stein. Dr. Stein is the director of research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also the director of their Middle East program and acting director of the National Security Program, and he is also the author of the forthcoming book, The U.S. War Against ISIS, How America and Its Allies Defeated the Califit, which comes out in January 2022 and is available for pre-order now. Aaron, thank you for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: So let's just start with How did you get involved in this project and what made you want to write a book about the Syrian conflict in the first place? Well, maybe
1: because I'm a sadist, um, but more poignantly, when the Syrian war began, I was actually living in Turkey, you know, so I was actually doing my PhD. My PhD was on nuclear weapons decision making by Iran and Turkey. So nothing to do with the Syrian conflict, but all of a sudden chemical weapons decided to pop up next door. I started to pay attention and anybody who was living in Turkey at that time could like see the secondary impacts of the conflict whether it be the IDPs or the or the people that were fleeing the conflict moving into Turkey and then the people coming the other way coming to Turkey as the transit point to go fight in this conflict. And so I began to follow it quite closely and because of my background I have a unique, sort of knowledge and understanding of some of the Kurdish groups that were fighting in the conflict. And so there were some overlaps with some people in the US government who were trying to figure out who these people were as we were going to war. And I built a I would say fairly impressive Rolodex of people that were involved in this. And just interview after interview. And after five years, I had, you know, hundreds of thousands of words sitting in this sort of static microsoft war document i said you know i should probably write this up because there's some unique stuff in there that hasn't been told about the u.s involvement in this war so not the war told through the rise of the islamic state not the war told through the sort of the frame of some of the uh the, the armed groups that were fighting but really how the u.s fought the war because i still don't think that that story has been told in its entirety
0: right right there's probably a lot that we don't know and i think the book Really sheds light on a lot of these kind of issues. I'm gonna ask you this question is not totally fair, but for those who are not familiar with the conflict really at all, can you sum up very briefly what's going on in Syria? Like who's fighting who, and, and what are they fighting about, and, and what's kind of the overall big picture of this conflict?
1: Yeah, I mean we have to take ourselves back in time. So if we can hit the rewind button to around 2011, the Arab Spring or these uprisings that were going out the through the Arab Middle East, we're still fresh in everybody's mind. You know, so you had Egypt. You had Tunisia, you had Libya, which is worthy of its own book um, on coalition air power. And then you had Syria and and the, the, the dynamics that took place in Syria were really the people rose up against an oppressive dictator. The dictator did not like that these people rose up and rather than make sort of the typical concessions one would make to try to tamp down a brewing civil conflict. You had violence upon violence upon violence, and all of a sudden it really just burst out uh, in the summer of uh, 2011. And you've really had, you know, some people call it a revolution, some people call it an insurgency, some people call it, you know, whatever it is that you want to call it. You really did have the country go to war with itself. And you have some variation of civil war that's going on. And on one side, you have the Syrian regime with its external backers, and those backers being the Iranians and the Russians. And the Russians come into the story very poignantly when you talk about air power. And on the other side, you had a sort of coalition of the willing of external partners who were giving support to the Syrian opposition against Bashar al Assad. And then nested within that civil conflict, you had the collapse of order next door in Iraq and sort of the vestiges or the the return of the insurgency that we had been fighting since between 2003 and 2011—a group that's gone by many names. Al Qaeda in Iraq is the one most thrown around blows up into this sort of big superstructure that we now call the Islamic State. It takes everybody by surprise um, by conquering the Iraqi city of Mosul in June 2014 and expanding its control over essentially what is eastern Syria. And it was the emergence of Islamic State that catalyzed overt military intervention in the conflict that brought to bear what we'll talk about today which is the use of air power and small number of us mostly special forces special operations forces to try and take back control of territory from the islamic state and the unique part about this is that the way we went about doing this was to work through a partner force and that partner force is. Politically problematic, but nevertheless militarily effective uh, precisely because they were able to link into U.S. air power and link with U.S. advisors and enablers to take the fight to the Islamic State in Syria.
0: Now, you've kind of hinted at, I think, what the answer to this next question is, but something you say kind of early on in the book is that this war is, and this is a quote, truly revolutionary in tactics and strategy. So what makes this war so revolutionary in terms of the tactics and strategy being used?
1: The way I conceptualize the book, it's the last of the 9-11 wars. You started the show with a, a reference to Afghanistan. So if Afghanistan was the first of the 9-11 wars, Syria is the last. And I feel pretty confident in saying that in that the attention and and the policy preferences of the U S government are going to move away from these types of campaigns that dominated most of my adult life. And the thing that I think makes it really unique is, is from the outset, there was a lot of politics that permeated how the United States should get involved. And one of which is that there should be, and I'm using air quotes for on a podcast here is that there should be no boots on the ground. You know, this was at during the Obama administration and the Obama administration came to power at a time where they were elected to end the U S engagement in Iraq. Iraq, which ultimately they did in 2011, but also at a time where there was political pressures. It seems a little odd now, but there was political pressures, both from the left and the right, to not get involved in an Iraq-style conflict again, i.e. that you would use large numbers of forces to invade, to occupy, to administer, and then ultimately to try and rebuild a country. And so there was pressure, or at least there was pushback, when the civil conflict in Syria began about what to do. And so the advocates who began pushing for air power, we were running up against the resistance of people saying, no, you're going to sign us up for another forever war. And so we ultimately ended up somewhere in the middle, which is very small numbers of forces put into Syria, many of which were never acknowledged and to this day are still not acknowledged. What they did was link into a local militia, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and it was the SDF with their enablers that was able to bring U.S. air power to bear to push the Islamic state out. And why I think it's revolutionary is because you could not have done this you know, in the ways that we did this at the beginning of the 9-11 wars, using mobile phones for GPS coordinates to being able to piggyback on all of our ISR feeds to really sort of digitize or at least make really efficient the way in which we can deliver air power in what was a territorial fight against an entrenched non-state actor.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that really comes out in the book really well is how air power is so closely coordinated with these ground forces, you know, whether it's special forces, maybe it's an ally, they're often directed by like a joint terminal air controller, a JTAC or someone else maybe on the ground. But sometimes they're being directed, air power is being directed by people, you know, on the other side of the planet, which is kind of interesting as well. So can you explain for us maybe in some detail, like on a tactical level or an operational level, how air power is being used in this kind of integrated way and what that kind of looks like day to day as the war unfolds?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that govern this is that in certain instances, certainly not in every instance, but in a lot of incidents, American forces could only go so far on the battlefield. So they had to sit back away from the forward line of troops or or the flot. And so they had to try and interact with these partner forces in ways short of actually being with them on the front line. And to do that, they developed all sorts of unique capabilities, like working through cell phone apps and stuff like that. But I think what you're talking about is that in certain respects, you could control this war from basically anywhere on the planet. A lot of the pilots that I interviewed talked about something like, you know, which is a relatively well-known term, which is reach back. which is that when they would be in the cockpit sort of doing their circles, waiting to be tasked for airstrikes, if you were close enough to a key node, that being Erbil or certain other places in the region, people could piggyback off of the sensor feeds that were coming. And those people could be as far away as Washington, D.C., you know, or even in the desert in the United States or even on the East Coast of the U.S. And so in some respects, those technological enablers made up for the fact that there were small numbers of U.S. forces. So one of the things that isn't relatively well-known, and I may get in trouble for saying it, but like I wrote it in the book, right, is that some of the JTACs weren't actually in-country, is that the JTACs were watching, they were responsible and working through these sensor feeds, either um, from a command center or an operations center in neighboring Iraq, they could see the battlefield. They could liaise with a Kurdish partner on the ground. The Kurdish partner would talk through an interpreter to this operations center. The operations center would validate the targets with ISR. They would look to make sure they were striking what they said they were going to do. They would meet the rules of engagement, and then they would clear the strike. So it was a very cumbersome process, but nevertheless a really interesting process because this was all enabled by global technology, satellite capabilities, satellite communications that now dominate the battlefield.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it kind of leads directly into the next question. Another aspect to what we've just been discussing is what you call the tyranny of technology and, and the push and the pull of what you also call technological overmatch. Look, we all understand that we have certain advanced technology here in the United States. It's created a lot of new capabilities, but it also leads to new problems like what you just talked about with reachback and the ability for more people to watch what is happening in real time. So how did that work and what were some of the advantages and disadvantages of these systems? Well, I mean, the advantages is
1: that you could keep the number small. You know, and like, there's always politics that permeate or that play a part in how wars are fought. And so if you think about the goalposts that were put in place during the Obama administration and that continued during the Trump administration, you know, it was to keep the numbers of American forces low, but ultimately to make as quick of progress as possible on the ground, taking as much territory as possible, because the end goal, particularly during the Trump administration was to leave as fast as possible. And so the advantages of this is that you could basically have full-time people not in-country, Watching sensor feeds that were able to plug into air power. You know, one of the things that the pilots would discuss is that, particularly with the partner force, the Syrian Democratic Forces, they never spoke to them. You know, like it wasn't as if they were liaising with them on the ground. They were liaising with a operations center who was talking to the Kurds on the ground, and like they were one step removed. And so, one of my favorite quotes in the book, you know, is like the pilots would they talk of them as like they were like ghost warriors. You know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit because for them, they were just things that you would see through a sensor feed. The disadvantage, of course, is that because we have so much technology, the rules can permeate about how you use force and it takes away sort of that ethos of the Air Force, which is sort of like like centralized planning, but decentralized execution. I may be butchering that a little bit. Everything becomes- Oh, you got it I got it, okay, perfect. I've, I've been listening to enough podcasts. Everything becomes centralized. You have people who piggyback off of these sensors. You could literally have somebody watching from around the world, plugging into the jets via satellite communications, and them saying, no, you can't strike there. You have to strike there. And they're not like full up with what's going on in the battle. They aren't sort of taking into account the dynamics that go into this thing. You know, For example, you're asking an F-15 Eagle pilot basically to use his judgment about what is a vehicle-borne IED, right? Like if you're in these narrow streets, you're watching on a sensor pod, the V-bids are the biggest concern for these ground forces and it's like, is it a V bid? is it not a V bid? When you're coming out of these urban situations, you think it is because it's sitting low, but it also could be Dram-Pack full of IDPs who are trying to get away from fighting and they couldn't get out of these urban centers before sort of some territory was taken back. It's these types of decisions you know, that can both be enabled by technology. You can get really high, high quality imagery of these things. You can really look at what these things are, but you could also have people saying, on this reachback issue, like, no, don't strike that target. And then, you know, you run the risk of making a mistake and getting some guys clobbered on the front lines.
0: There's just so much going on in this war, like everything you're describing. uh, There's so many layers to it. And the thing that added another layer and, and the part of the book that jumped out at me the most is this aspect of directly confronting the Russians. You know, the Russian Air Force, Russian air assets end up flying in very close proximity to U.S. and allied forces and in some cases are going into direct combat, right? There's a Turkish F-16 shoots down an Su-24. There's that U.S. shoot down of an Su-22 that got a lot of press back when it happened. And you have some other, you know, previously unreported incidents in here that are really interesting. So tell us about these encounters and what's going on when, you know, American and Allied aircraft start directly interfacing with, or and, and sometimes combating, the Russians.
1: Yeah, I would say as a general rule in the analyst community, like me included, we underestimated the Russians. You know, when we went to war in 2011, I don't think any of us had on our bingo card that the Russian Air Force would show up four years later right? And even when they showed up four years later, there was a lot of talk that, oh, they've gotten themselves involved in a quagmire, stuff like that. And I, had, this isn't in the book, but it, it's something that comes out of my interviews. They kind of surprised us a little bit in that this isn't the decrepit Air Force of the post-Soviet 1990s. This is an Air Force that was able to generate high sortie rates throughout the entirety of the conflict and still to this day, even with their limitations with precision-guided munitions. When they first showed up, we were watching them, as I document in the book from interviews, build out the airbase and so we understood that they were coming even if it hadn't been reported yet and it was that they were coming that actually led the obama administration to loosen some of the rules on army special forces being able to spend time in syria so there were some some delta operators jsoc in syria that i document in the book but the rules about the army guys were pretty tight in the obama era and when the russians came in the decision was made to loosen the loosen those rules because the thinking was is that the russians wouldn't bomb americans probably a good thought right but like That was one aspect of it. So the American footprint actually deepened with the Russians. But the other aspect of it is the Russians got really aggressive right away when they intervened. And you had the first incident, which is the shoot down from Turkey. The Russians had routinely been violating Turkish airspace. And one day the Turks finally had enough and the F-16 shot down the Su-24 in my interviews in the book i actually talked to pilots who were both deployed in turkey and that's a whole other story that was going on the amount of politics involved to get american access uh to turkey to prosecute the war particularly up north but also the concerns right that that this incident would lead to more hostile Russian action. And the U.S. pilots certainly did say they had um, more aggressive moves with intact Syrian IADs that the U.S. never did take out during the entirety of the war. They began to be a little bit more aggressive with those. They moved an S-400 into Syria, which obviously changed the game. And importantly, the Russians asked for the Turks to be taken off of the coalition's air-tasking order. The U.S. complied. And then we, kind of by luck... But ultimately, by necessity, began flying more A 10s over the north of Syria because there was no, because the Russians can easily differentiate the A 10 from the F 16 on radar, and the Turks fly F 16, we fly F 16. So telling them apart, it was just easier to go with the A 10. So one of the things that the A 10 guy says is like, they thought that their time over Syria would actually be canceled from Turkey out of caution. But actually, they just kept launching as is. The other interesting dynamic and stuff that would come up is that that part of Syria, this northern part around Azaz and Jarablus which was this main transit route coming from Turkey into Aleppo around that time, the Russians were really hitting hard. And so it was the merge point, actually, for three air forces. Before air forces, it was the Turkish Air Force, before they left the American Air Force, the Syrian Air Force, and the Russian Air Forces. And those Early deconfliction, according to the pilots I was talking about, were based upon red flag. They were based upon sort of red flag rules, which is you had different altitude blocks. You know, like this isn't exactly sophisticated stuff. And so, like, you would have frequent frictions and in interactions between Russians and Americans. Later in the war, You had a couple of incidents, particularly around negotiations for who would control what side of the Euphrates River. This was around the 2017 timeframe. The Russians began to get very aggressive with U.S. pilots because basically what had happened is is that the U.S. was on one side of the river and the Russians and the regime were on the other side of the river. We were both bombing ISIS, fog and friction of war, and the Russians would sometimes cross that river and they would bomb in close proximity to U.S. forces. And when that happens, it was up to the pilots to interpret the rules of engagement. Now, those rules of engagement aren't classified, and I don't really have good like fidelity on what exactly they were saying, but we didn't shoot down any Russians. But one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we got close a few times in that we had locked up the Russians with missiles, then vice versa. And the quote from the book is that we were in a right, proper Mexican standoff with both of us basically pointed at each other to the point where you had high aspects merge between a su 34 and an f-15e at night in weather you know with the burner going full blast from the from the su 34 to the point where the f-15 eagle driver was talking about he could feel his canopy chattering from the blast waves off of the back of that su 34 and it really got that tense You know, there was other incidents, for example, where this led to that famous uh, U.S. Navy shoot down of the Su-22. What was unreported, although I know it's been picked up by uh, an excellent study that the the RAND Corporation did on, on Syria, is that a Syrian jet actually bombed a U.S. outpost. They just happened to miss. We got lucky. Right, but the rules of engagement were so strict, and that we didn't shoot it down. And then we also had multiple incidents where Iranian drones, or one incident, I should say, not multiple. We had one incident where an Iranian drone actually fired a missile at that same American outpost. This is down by Tauf, the border crossing between where basically Iraq, Syria, and Jordan come together. You had an Iranian drone shoot a missile at a small outpost, and luckily it was inert; the the, mu- the missile didn't fuse, and that was one of the incidents where an F-15 shot down an Iranian armed drone. So there was. All sorts of things that went on. One of the interesting things about the Russians is that their aggression, if you piece the whole story together, and this was one of the interesting things pulling out from the book, is that the diplomats who I interviewed, because I did a lot of diplomacy, they would hear about these incidents you know but they would hear about them after the fact and the pilots and the people prosecuting the war were in the dark about what the diplomats were doing and so there was this divergence and so if you actually put the story together the russians would get very aggressive in the air when they wanted something from the diplomats so they would turn the heat up and then that's how we ultimately get sort of what's in place today which is this they call it deconfliction plus which is there's a mechanism for the two sides to talk it's over email And they basically say if they're going to cross the river, they give pre-notification. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going to fly. And so at least give some predictability to Russian and American flight operations, although the Russians don't always inform us before they're going to do something and vice versa. And so you run into a lot of different incidents uh, that I document to the book.
2: Every bit of that is fascinating. Aaron, I want to thank you for bringing up Red Flag. And if you're listening to the podcast and you're curious about what Red Flag is exactly, or if you want more history on that operation, I suggest you go and look at the writings of your your host and you might find just what you're looking for. Uh, but Aaron, let's talk about specific platforms. You say that one, if not the main workhorse of the war is the F-15E Strike Eagle. And of course, the war in Syria is also the first combat use of the F-22 Raptor. So if you could just talk about both of those platforms for a minute. The weather Oh, sure. The F-15E Strike Eagle was
1: absolutely critical, particularly around Raqqa. It's unacknowledged, right? But one of the things that happened is that during the war, the Jordanian government was particularly spooked by the rise of Islamic State. And the US officials I interviewed were never certain, like the level of how spooked they were. Was it designed to wrest concessions from the US when they were particularly upset in the early stages that they wanted the US to do more to bolster their security? Or were they really that frightened that, ISIS in their Toyota helixes were going to come across the border. And so one of the things that happened is that a small F 16 base was built out during the war. You know, it's Mwafak Saltik Air Base. The pilots who are deployed there could just call it Azrak. And Azrak was really the hub for the Strike Eagle. And it became super important at the later stages of the war because Rucka is in close proximity there. They would set up in cast wheels over Rucka, and they would essentially be on-call close air support. So one of the things that happened in Rucka is that while we were talking about the tyranny of technology earlier, there were operators in Rucka. A lot of the rules were lessened during the Trump administration. And one of the interesting things about this is through the course of my research is like those guys, you know, the JSOC guys came up with what like a dynamic targeting cell where they were able to piggyback on feeds themselves and they were able to watch the entirety of the battlefield from like trucks near inside Syria. You know, in in some respects, being able to task some ISR, take advantage of some ISR for the fight. And so the Strike Eagle was important. And what was really important is that the pilots really trained up before they went because the interesting thing about Rucka was like the high ground wasn't from terrain. It was from the buildings in the city themselves. And so they were having to find themselves destroying buildings because they had been infested with ISIS and they would use them for snipers. And then the bottom areas of these buildings and in garages, they would roll out AAA pieces. And they would cover the top of these streets with just basic tarps to hide them from our sensors. And they would fire some AAA at our pilots. Now, why we would stay above this, right, it's still one of those things that they had to contend with. And so the Strike Eagle, because of its capabilities, was used a lot. The a ten two, you know, the A-10 was deployed in Turkey, as I was saying. And so it was used a lot up north, um, particularly in this little pocket called the Mambij Pocket you know, which is this place between you know Marea and Azaz and the Euphrates River and there's all these politics involved there. But they were involved there and they were involved as far down as Raqqa as well. One of the interesting things that the A-10 pilots were talking about when they were doing interviews was that a lot of them had grown up in Afghanistan, you know, again, to bring it back to sort of like, this is a different of the 9-11 wars. And so a lot of their weapon was under even more constricted rules of engagement, right? So even though Syria was Was a pretty constricted environment it wasn't like afghanistan post i believe 2014. two is is that the level of structures that they were tasked to destroy were different so in afghanistan you know it was a lot of rural targets right like like taliban insurgency type targets you know I, i don't want to sound stereotypical but they said they were a lot of like kind of like wooden or adobe or mud huts whereas in these urban environments they were um large concrete structures you know it was relearning some of those weaponeering techniques to take out these large buildings the raptor became important with the russians so one of the things that happened with the russians is is that they forward deployed the Su-35 and the Su-35 would accompany the Su-34 this was after the turkish shootdown and the decision was made that if there's a like this is a quote from the book if there's and i believe it was from a raptor pilot like If there's a Su-35 in the air, and this also came from Strike Eagle Pilot, so I'm not speaking out of turn, is like in terms of maneuvering, i.e. in a close-in BFM dogfight, the Su-35 is a more capable platform than the F-15. Now, of course, taking sensors away and all that stuff, right? But like just 1v1 in visual range. And so the Raptor was actually brought in as a counter to the Su-35 to provide aerial overmatch but they did have some problems. So much of the war was air to ground, and that's why the the F-15 and the A-10 were so important for this war. The F-22 isn't ideally suited for air to ground. I believe the pilots towards the end were calling it Helen Keller because it was blind from air to ground. And so it really had to work in tandem with the F-15. The F-15 would handle that stuff. And if the Russians really kind of tangled it up with some Su-35s, the F-22s would come booming in sort of to assist in types of those things. So they were essentially running like, you know, what we would call them Sukhoi Cap or like cap, you know, down by the Euphrates River watching for Russians.
0: Now, you've talked a lot about doing interviews and, and talking to these folks and, you know, looking through your notes, you based so much of this on these interviews with all kinds of different people from all kinds of different perspectives. You know, research on a topic like this is obviously inherently challenging. And a lot of the sources that historians like us typically would use are not really available yet, or maybe there's classification issues. So you're doing a lot of oral history interviews with all these people. How did you go about researching this book and what are some of the advantages or, or maybe some some of the challenges that you had to deal with. So I got lucky.
1: I got invited to speak to a couple of the folks who were deploying out there. I mean this was unclassed i just kind of kept in contact with these guys right and one of the magic of mobile phones is that signal works worldwide and so we just kind of kept in touch right and just chatting we were talking because my areas of expertise are really about turkey and the turks were kind of a political problem the entire time through this for a number of reasons and so they would ask me questions like why are the turks doing this and i would like ask them questions how did it go today you know and like all of a sudden i was just building all of these interviews And then once I decided to really sit down and write the book, I thought I had a lot, but then I didn't. I had to fill back in so much stuff. And so I went to these people and I'm like, I'm writing a book. I'm not a journalist. I'm a think tanker. I'm actually just curious to tell your story. No names, nothing like that. I was like, can we just chat? And a lot of people just said yes. To be humble, it's the first go at this, right? So, like, there's some stuff that I'm certain I've missed. There's some possibilities, you know, I missed some important stuff because this stuff is inherently hard. And so, like, there will be an incredible value to comparing this in, like, 15 to 20 years to all of the stories that weren't told through the pilots that I was able to track down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the interesting things about history in general and one of the reasons I'm so attracted to this field. You know, you get books like this that are kind of like the as it happened, first pass kind of story. And then years go by, you know, new sources will come out and people will think of different types of questions to ask about it. And our knowledge will just continue to grow as we kind of revise what we know about it.
1: This this is really what drove me, like uh, one of the many reasons that drove me to take a stab at this. There's a tendency to just throw air power and soft at everything. And nobody really understands how it all plugs together, how complicated it is, how difficult all this is, how much skill goes into this, you know, and that was one of the real big journeys for me, you know, because I feel like if we're going to be making policy recommendations from my field, we really should have an understanding of the implications and what it takes to do what we say in that bullet point, which is like, you know, drilled into us to be pithy and
0: trying to keep it to two pages or less. You know what I'm saying? Thinking about that and kind of like what this might mean for the future, and and this is always a shot in the dark, but, you know, with the war being fresh on our minds still, what do you think the legacy of this war is or maybe should be? Not just broadly, but also kind of in terms of air power history. Gosh,
1: I feel like its closest, like analogous campaign is that for those first couple months in Afghanistan, but the technologies being used Even on, you know, October 2001 versus, you know, October 2021, obviously it's been two decades, but it's so radically different, you know, and so just seeing the evolution of the Air Force. And so while the airframes are largely the same, the stuff that's inside them are so different. But I will also say this. This was small, you know. Again, I'm using air quotes here. It was small. There was never any more than five thousand, give or take, troops in Iraq. There was never more than twenty five hundred, give or take. You know, we all know how they can kind of you know, f- uh, finagle the numbers a little bit, but let's just take the top line numbers. The amount that goes into how we fight these wars is incredible. You know, one of the stories I didn't tell is that in one of those fracases with the uh, with the Russians, they had locked up a U twenty eight and a C-130 gunship, you know, so obviously um, attached to the the JSOC task force there. And so those assets had to hightail it out of there, right? But it just goes to show you how much of the air power, and that's one of the criticisms of the book, that whole aspect of the air power campaign, I never got access to, right? Like that one's way too far down the classification rabbit hole. But if you think about how many enabling assets it took even to support this, in an era like we're calling it strategic competition now, even small wars or big wars, when you have a very small air force, or like the smallest air force we've ever had, that's something that I really want to drive home. So looking forward, where my brain went is like, we need to rethink this. You know, the stories are cool. <laughs> you know, tangling with the Russians over Eastern Syrian desert is a lot of fun, right? But it's not necessarily the best way to deploy these assets when we have such bigger problems. You know, and that's one of the fun intellectual challenges. Me as an outsider Uh, or really grappling with, it's like, how do you really make this whole targeting infrastructure lighter, less logistics, less complicated and less expensive? That's where where I think the field should be going because it's just a lot of fun and
0: super interesting. Well, anyone who wants that kind of intellectual challenge can uh, pick up this book. It's called The U.S. War Against ISIS, How America and Its Allies Defeated the Caliphate, which comes out in January of next year, and it's available for pre-order now. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Where can we find more of your stuff online?
1: Yeah, so I, I work full-time at, at, at FPRI, Foreign Policy Research Institute, so fpri.org. Um, I write almost exclusively for War on the Rock, so you can always find me over there and on Twitter at at Aaron Stein 1. Awesome.
0: Well, you can find me at mwhankins.com, on Twitter at Hankinstein, with a T-I-E-N, or on Instagram at HankinsMW. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at Digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, please send us an email at BalloonsToDrones.com slash contact, or feel free to submit an article for publication at BalloonsToDrones.com slash submissions. Thank you all, and See you next time.